Hello, everyone, and welcome to the State of Sport Management, a podcast with Dr. Matthew Hummel coming from the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's this week's episode. Welcome, everybody, back to another episode here of State of Sport Management. We just finished up a great episode with Dr. Heidi Grappendorf at Western Carolina talking about the negotiation perspective from a faculty member, which was awesome. Um, I've already have a few people that have talked to me already really excited about its release because we're recording this one before that one actually goes live. But I think it's going to really provide some great information and maybe some great conversation between faculty members. But on top of that, what I also think is really important is for us to get a perspective from an administrator and especially someone from sport management. And so to make that happen today, I, we have, I guess I should say, we have a guest, Dean Damon Andrew, who is the Dean of Education at Florida, perfect, at Florida State University. Um, Damon has previously been a faculty member at Louisiana State. And where else have you been, Damon? I was also a dean at Troy University in Alabama, and I've been on the faculty at University of Tennessee and University of Louisville. Perfect. So, Damon's going to give us a wealth of information and experience from not only being a faculty member, but now also being a dean, which I think is going to be really vital information because I think sometimes with negotiation, you feel a little bit anxious, nervous, because you really don't know what the other side is perceiving within this negotiation. So, um, Dean Andrew, thanks for joining us today. Happy to do it, Matt. Anytime. Yeah, this is great. So kind of walk us through some basics here of what is the process of involvement that you have as a dean with faculty candidates? Well, at the dean level, I usually lead the, the search committees. Um, they're charged with actively searching for candidates and screening applicants. <clears throat> so oftentimes, the only when I'll start getting involved in the search process will be... <clears throat> The search committee will actually forward to me a list of names, uh, a proposed slate of finalists that's presented to me, and usually dean approval is required prior to any on-campus visits for um, finalists. Okay. So that'll be my first opportunity to really kind of look over the uh, final slate of candidates as they're proposed. And then once they're approved, candidates will come on campus for a day or two um, and They'll usually have a one-hour interview scheduled with me as part of the overall campus candidates on campus interview. I would, you know, for the candidate, that's their one hour to really um, make an impression upon the dean. Uh, The dean sometimes also has, I mean, certainly has the option if schedule permits to attend the candidates open presentation. So at research-focused universities, that might be focused on a a research presentation or at a teaching focused university that might actually be teaching a class. Um, but oftentimes the dean's schedule is so busy, there's not much opportunity to do uh, participate in that part as well. So it's really important that the candidate come prepared to the interview uh, with the dean because that's their, their one opportunity to make a uh, lasting impression on the dean. Gotcha. And so how many candidates, not just sport administration or management, how many candidates do you think you meet with in a fall semester on, on average? Uh, so right now we have, uh, I think, eight or nine searches that are going on in the college. We'll usually bring in at least two, often three candidates for each position. So that's 24, 25. Um, uh, we've been trying to systematically move our timeline up earlier and earlier since I've arrived here at Florida State. In the past, a lot of our interviews weren't happening until the spring semester. And 
want to make sure that we can get the some of the best candidates in the market sometimes can be taken up by them. So we want to make sure that we get uh, our advertisements out early and get on-campus interview offers started. So we've really focused this particular year and getting all those interviews done uh, during the context of the fall semester. So we've been working hard on that and it looks like we're going to be successful. So I've actually met with two candidates this morning before we even had this podcast <laughs> and I have one more this afternoon. So, um, yeah, you're catching, you're catching me fresh from the experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I can't imagine trying to meet 25 people over a semester to learn a little bit about them, figure out, get a feel for how those candidates are, whether you think they're a fit also what your thoughts are just generally, which one you prefer. It just, right. that seems just, mind numbing to me. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of, a lot of coordination that's involved. And we started trying to put together a timeline here at FSU um, at the beginning of the fall semester that uh, where, where I try to commit to being on campus for two, two straight weeks. So they know that I'm going to be available for candidate interviews during that. Time. Oh yeah. Um, and that's, uh, that's been strategic. It means I've, you know, give up travel every now and then I'll, I'll miss the, the trip to New Zealand for the SMANS conference uh, oh. here in a couple of weeks because of that. But it's it's important work and it's a whole lot easier to try to, to do it through a timeline like that and plan it out ahead of time than trying to guess whether or not different parties are going to be on campus at the right time. If, it's, if it is a situation where I'm definitely not available, but we need to move forward with the search, um, we can certainly have an associate dean meet with a candidate as well. But I tend to prefer to like to meet with each one of the candidates ahead of time and and often it's a selling point for them as well. I mean, they want to make sure they meet the dean and, and see if there's a connection there early on uh, because that, that's an important part of their decision as well. Yeah, and not to go too far into that, but I think that's a good point because I know this is either what – is this your second year at Florida State? Second year at Florida State, 12th year as a dean overall. Yeah, and so I feel like if I was a new faculty member, especially coming into a place that has a newer dean, I definitely would want to meet – with you to get a feel for what your research expectations are teaching for, especially for tenure and promotion, because when you have a Dean that's been there a long time, I think a lot of people have a lay of the land. And when I've gone to interviews, I want to ask as many people as possible to see if the message I'm getting is consistent. But with a new Dean, obviously that message just can't be because some people maybe haven't met with you or only briefly talked to you. And so to me, absolutely. I agree that I, if as a new, as an interviewing faculty member, I definitely would want to meet with you to try to get as much of that information as I could. So that makes total sense. Um, it's also a great opportunity, I think, to ask the dean about vision for that particular program in the college and how it's moving forward, um, so that you can see whether or not your research line and and your program uh, seems to be a, a key component of the college in the future. Yeah. No, oh, that's a great point. And so how. You talked a little bit about this already, but how involved in the search are you? Like you do the interviews, so but kind of what else is involved there, especially for, um, and we kind of have a follow up here of like cutting off of how many candidates you potentially are willing to make an offer on. Right. Um, So there have been some cases in the past where the search committee has reached out early on in the process and asked for me to maybe get involved, whether it's um, uh, a particular candidate that they're targeting um, you know, maybe trying to get some background information about that candidate from the other dean, um, or okay. if it's in a discipline where I'm familiar with um, the candidates, uh, either getting my feedback on the candidate early on, or in some cases, 
um, asking, you know, having me get involved in the recruiting process where they may ask me to contact the candidate, encourage them to apply, um, as opposed to someone from the search committee. It's very rare for that to happen, but it does, it does happen, uh, occasionally. As far as the cutoff of how many candidates could potentially get offers, the search committee is usually asked to forward a list of viable finalists to me, um, after on-campus interviews are completed. So, they will look through um, after those on-campus interviews and determine which one of those finalists they really feel are hireable. Um, in some instances, all finalists are considered to be hireable. And in other instances, I've seen the committee come back and say, well, none of these people that we brought on we think are <laughs> fit, and either the search needs to be continued or even closed for the year. Um, <clears throat> if it's continued, additional finalists being named or brought in. But Usually you're able to find at least one. Um, the cutoff on candidate offers occurs really when all viable candidates are exhausted. So that could be after one candidate or as many as three or four. But in, in my experience, it rarely goes beyond two candidates with the offers. A lot of times, you know, if the, there can be back and forth in the negotiations with different candidates and the time goes the time that it takes to have those negotiations is time when other people that are finalists in your search are also being uh, courted by other universities. And so they may all of a sudden no longer be a candidate for you because they've accepted another position. And good point. There's uh, the timeline is kind of so short that it rarely goes beyond two. And then if you start getting into your third choice and your fourth choice, so often the search committee will kind of say, well, you know, can we, can we make it one year without this position being filled and come back to the table next year? Uh, because we really don't think we're going to find uh, a really suitable candidate that far down in our pool of candidates. So uh, a lot of times they'll hit the reset button at that stage. Yeah. And so um, one thing you mentioned about like not having or deciding there isn't any viable candidate. Is there any trends there about like potentially the higher up that position goes, the harder it is to find someone? Like I've kind of always wondered searching for a department chair, for example, that you might have a harder time convincing a strong candidate pool because you have people that potentially already have tenure or in comfortable situations or also making a good amount of money because they potentially have gone through some raises and merit pay. Is, is, that a, is, that, is that an acceptable assumption there or do you feel different? Yeah, in some ways, because the part, if it's a department that has multiple disciplines in it, within it, in some ways you would think that it increases the scope of potential applicants for the position, which is probably true. But okay. for the reasons you mentioned as well is that you know, oftentimes to, to have a candidate who would be a very experienced candidate uh, for a department chair position, that means they're probably pretty far along in their career and comfortable at their current institution. It, it may need to be something about your institution, maybe the geographical location, or there's something about the mission of your institution that makes it very compelling for that candidate to want to, or maybe they're at an institution where they don't have a leadership opportunity. There's a, there's a chair that's clearly in it for the long term at their institution, so they've reached a ceiling, and so maybe they'll consider there, but you're right. It becomes even more tricky, I think, at the department chair position for administrative positions because you're looking at both the faculty fit and the administrative fit. Um, and so it's just an extra layer that has to be considered to make sure that you're, you're hiring the right candidate. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so once it, like when you make an offer to a candidate, like I'm assuming, can you kind of give us some details done on the phone, email, how much information do you give them? How much time do you give them? 
You know, uh, Matt, I've actually found that to vary quite a bit based okay. upon the institution. So some will actually present the initial offer in writing. Okay. Um, while others will convey the offer verbally. Uh, I think the key elements that, that come along with the offer include the months of employment. Is it a nine month, a 10 month or a 12 month position? Um, the salary, the, at least the base salary be put down in, in that initial offer, what the title will be. If it, if you happen to apply for an open rank or an assistant slash associate, they'll be very clear. They should be very clear about which title they're offering you, whether or not the position is tenor track. Um, and then, you know, the basic elements of a startup or transition package, if the university offers those things. And in most cases, I found the department chair is the one who actually presents the offer and they serve as okay. a designated representative of the university. But in some smaller colleges and universities, the dean may be the person that actually presents the offer. So it, it really varies a lot based upon the institution. Yeah. And that's a good point. Cause I would say at tech, when I was at Texas tech, our, our department chair, Angel Lunkin, she called me, gave me some basic details. And then once we had an agreement, then she, I think, mailed me the official contract for me to sign and send back in. And right. then here at Cincy, I actually had our Dean, uh, Dean Johnson was the one that we did our negotiation. We actually did our negotiation live on the phone, which was um, also interesting, but okay. yeah, that was definitely agreeing that you don't really know, like, yeah, you know, someone's going to call you or maybe provide some basic details, but that was, that's a kind of a good point there. Um, so kind of going into those negotiation points, let's kind of talk through those. So let's start with like salary discussion or like kind of negotiation, whatever topics that you feel like are best fit. Sure. I think most universities have salary ranges that are provided to them through human resources. And depending upon the budget model at the university, whether or not there's much flexibility, uh, there may not, there may or may not be much flexibility with salary at the college level. It, it just kind of depends Okay. And when, when I tender a maximum salary offer to the, the range, uh, at the top of the range through the chair, I actually will ask the chair to inform the candidate that the current offer represents the highest offer available for the positions so that the candidate fully understands. That's my I think preference. that's smart. Yeah. yeah. So if we, if let's say we have a salary range that's, I don't know, 80000 to 90000 for an assistant professional position, it's somebody that we really, really want or we feel is... Um, maybe already has a couple of years experience of the high end of that range, then we'll go ahead and that chair will, will just say, look, uh, uh, the Dean wanted me to communicate to you that um, I'm very impressed with your interview here. And um, as, as a result, he's going ahead and authorized the maximum amount for this position, which is $90,000. Um, so that they understand that it's uh, um, a, you know, strong, strong offer that's coming from the university and they'll know, because uh, I think for a candidate, it's very difficult to be able to wade into the waters of figuring out what's negotiable and what's not negotiable Agreed. among all these different points. And, you know, I do know that um, a lot of universities use, uh, we, in fact, we use them at Florida State here, the Oklahoma State University um, uh, salary guide, I think their institutional research and information department um, conducts an annual survey every year. Um, institutions can pay for the results of that survey and it breaks down um, survey uh, salaries by discipline and SIP code. Um, and it also breaks it down based upon uh, assistant, first year assistant professor, typical assistant professor, associate professor, full professor, um, non-tenure track positions. And so it gives us, uh, we actually use a formula here at Florida State 
to make sure that our salary offers are above what the national averages are um, uh, that are reported to the Oklahoma State University salary, and that helps guide what our what our caps are. It makes sure that all of our offers are competitive, um, but it, but it also makes sure that they're fair within the discipline and that they're um, representative of what you would probably find at other top top universities as well. And can you say the name of that again? Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State University Institutional Research and Information Management is the unit. But if you just Google Oklahoma State University Faculty Salary Survey, I bet you it pops up. They usually charge about $100 uh, to get those survey results every year when they come out. And that's just an expense that we've, um, you know, pay at the college level to make sure that, that the offers that we're making are very much in tune and current with what's being offered at other universities. And, and we, we strive for a percentage higher um, than whatever the average amount is. So it's it'd be okay. a real advantage for uh, someone who, particularly in the early stages of a particular faculty rank, um, because they're getting an offer that's really the average of that rank, which would include early and, you know, l- longer serving faculty in that rank, plus a percentage above that is where our our offer usually comes in. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I did not know about that. Um, tying in like with startup, like how does that conversation go? Like with startup, I'd even bundle in travel funding potentially within this. I think um, startup offers beyond computer, the basic computer equipment and maybe software are still somewhat rare in sport management. However, I think if the depart- sport management program happens to be situated within a department of kinesiology, um, modest stop, startup offers may come as part of a package that startup funding is commonly offered for those bench scientists in kinesiology. It may be part of the norm, so as a result, they offer a modest package that comes in. Um, a lot of times, startup funding usually has an expiration date of one year. That's because, based upon the budgeting model at the university, they may not have rollover funding to be able to guarantee um, startup funding beyond a year, but they know they have, they have a fixed amount of money for the next uh, fiscal year that they would be able to offer. Um, And depending upon, uh, I guess, candidates that provide, I found that candidates that provide strong rationales that are tied to desired university outcomes along with the startup package requests are more likely to attract support. The absolute worst thing for a candidate to say when when a startup package is brought up or they ask about a startup package and they say, well, why do you need one of those? Well, I hear that you normally offer that to your other assistant professors, so I think I, sh- I should get one as well. <laughs> That's the wrong answer. The answer should be that you've already clearly thought it. In fact, I would already have a budget uh, prepared that you could email or send as part of the negotiation and tie in those startup costs into specific desired outcomes that you know the university wants based upon that interview that you had on campus, maybe the job description they offered to you. Certainly travel funding, um, is, is part of that as well. Often though times travel funding may be more continuous than startups. So some departments may have a base amount that they offer and allocate to all of their faculty for travel funding. Um, and then there's the other thing about travel funding is that there's usually internal competitions, internal grant competitions for additional travel funding at the university, whether that's administered by the graduate school, the office of research at the, uh, university or provost office, depending upon how the university is structured. So you may get a base amount that it's kind of guaranteed from your department, but then there could be substantially higher amounts that are offered 
at other pots of money at the university. Plus, if the travel is international, there may be an international fund that you can apply for that helps cover those. I think it's real key, you know, for a candidate, if, 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 a, if a department chair comes back and says, well, all of our faculty here um, in this department typically get, you know, at least $1,500 for travel, and then they can pl- apply for funding in other areas. If the candidate comes back and tries to negotiate that $1,500 amount, um, one of the things they have to consider, department chair usually has a fixed amount of funding um, for all of, all of their travel in that unit. It's divided by a certain number of faculty members. So if you're trying to negotiate for an additional $500 of base funding in your travel, that means somebody else's allocation is going to have to go down by $500 to do that. It's, mm. uh, yeah, I, I think one mistake, a rookie mistake that a lot of candidates will make is not understanding the big picture of, of how their negotiations may go, that they may win, win the battle of getting the, the additional $500, but then a senior faculty member is told they have $500 less the next year to accommodate for your new faculty member, and that person's going to be voting on your tenure and promotion later on. <laughs> I'm going to um, say you become public enemy number one. Yes, yes. So, I mean, I think it's important to – you also want to um, understand that you need to be a good team player in those elements. Maybe even ask the question of, of whether or not that department-level funding is negotiable or not or if that's something that's just standard for everybody because you don't want to walk to walk yourself uh, or back yourself into a corner and then all of a sudden be asking for these additional uh, funding and then find out once you get on campus, Oh yeah, that's, that's the guy that went in and asked for all this extra stuff because I, now that means I can't go to my trip this year or or I don't have uh, uh, the funding that I would normally have because of that. So you got to be careful in negotiating some of those. And uh, my solution to that is, if you're a sc- if you have a school that offers startup and you potentially envision that you are going to need extra funds, maybe um, like this year had been a good example because there's quite a few desirable international locations for conferences. That might might be the area to say, you know, I'm looking to get an additional seven hundred dollars to my startup because I want to go to Wasm that was in Chile. Yes. Where, but yeah, I think asking for I want an additional. $500 a year for travel. That's going to be a tough ask. Um, maybe you can, if I'm the candidate, maybe be more open-ended to find out solutions to that without yeah, trying to cut off someone else's knees or cut someone off at the knees on that. Because to me, I've jokingly uh, commented how I love, I wish I should have just negotiated that the UC would pay for me to go to Smans every year. Cause I love going down there, yes, but, um, <laughs> but it's just, yeah, I think that's where we're trying to find a solution because the travel funding to get that boost if what, compared to what everyone else is getting could be a tricky concept to, that makes sense in your head, but won't on a departmental level. Yeah, absolutely. And your point about tying it to a relevant outcome or, you know, maybe you're actually collecting data um, and another continent that ties into that particular conference, or there's a key collaborator there that this is the only time during the year that you have the opportunity to connect with each other. And you could also get a conference presentation as part of it. Um, I think that that's very key. Um, understanding too, there are ways that you can get at this without, without being too direct. I mean, you can certainly ask about, are there other internal grant opportunities for travel funding? Um, is there additional support for international um, travel and those types of things that, 
would still allow you to uh, maintain the perception as a team player and under and you understanding that you are one one person on a, in a much larger unit, but also trying to tie it into at the end of the day, a university is going to invest in you and moving that if it's going to help both of you if there's shared benefit to both of you to to move forward. So you you make an excellent point there. Yeah, and. Another big one thing comes up with almost every faculty member is moving costs. So how is that discussed? So certainly some universities uh, will subsidize relocation expenses for new faculty. One thing to definitely keep in mind that's changed over the last couple of years is that due to the new federal regulations, subsidized moving expenses are now counted as income and are taxable. Yeah. So Yeah. So faculty need to be prepared to pay taxes if moving expenses are provided. Um, that's didn't used to be that way. Um, but it's, it certainly is that way now. And you don't want to be caught surprised at the very end of the year when, um, comes time to pay those taxes and you realize, Whoa, that money that negotiated for relocation is now I have to pay taxes on that. So you have certainly keep that in mind. I think some universities have a standard amount that is offered while others like here at FSU, we actually use a formula based upon the distance between the candidate's current residence and the university. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. So it, it varies. If you're further away, then um, you can qualify for more travel funding. If you are, you know, uh, just three hours away, four hours away, based upon where you currently are right now, you, um, you're not going to be offered as much. Um, yeah. And I've heard some schools have like preferred partners with absolutely. moving companies or I was just about to mention that oh, okay, they're going to have uh, an official moving partner of the university and others will operate purely on a reimbursement basis. And so for those, it's very important that you hold on to all of your receipts. A lot of times, <laughs> even if they have a, re- a preferred moving partner, they may require you to get three quotes. Um, you know, some, some universities, if it's a senior level position, they may pay for moving and packing as opposed to just moving alone. If it's an entry level position, you know, you're lucky if you're, if you're able to be getting the moving expenses covered. Um, it's, it's an investment, just like the conferences that we mentioned earlier and the, uh, the costs. I know my first position at University of Louisville came with $700 of travel funding at the department level. That's all we had. I went <laughs> and they're only at 800 right now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. So I went to five conferences a year. Um, I mean, I spent a lot of my own money to do that because I felt it was important for my professional development and, and to, and to move forward. So you, you have to be able to take the good with the bad and understand that you know, those types of perks are great benefits. Um, if a university has the resources to offer them, but if they don't at the end of the day, if it's a good fit for you and a good, you know, don't let, don't let something that's a short term expense, whether it's, you know, the moving expense or whether it's, you know, maybe some additional startup or a little extra on the travel side, keep you away from what would be a great experience because at the end of the day, money isn't everything. So. Yeah. And the transition that for the, something that isn't just money, but insurance, mm-hmm. I know this is kind of basic because universities kind of have a set insurance plan. You, maybe get options through that, but those are your options. But is there anything else that's potentially been negotiated for insurance wise that from since in your Dean experience? I've really found the vast majority of universities that have a standard insurance package for all faculty. That's not really negotiable. Now the, the coverages and rates certainly vary from year to year and what you want to, you need to figure out what parts of the insurance plan are mandatory versus what are optional. 
There also may be other perks at the university that um, faculty may not think of initially. You know, a lot of private universities and even some public universities may offer um, tuition discounts for you, um, your spouse, or your dependents. And if you have children that are nearing college age years, that can make a, a major difference if all of a sudden they're able to go to the university for 50% of what the tuition cost would be, or in some cases, all of that being covered. So uh, I would familiarize yourself with the human resources website of the university that you're um, and negotiating with and see if there are some elements of, of that. Sometimes that's buried within a faculty handbook. Um, or some other document, but I would explore those thoroughly so that you know what options are on the table and whether or not um, you're going to, that would make a big difference sometimes. You may be able to make $2,000 more a year at another university, but they don't offer tuition um, support for your dependents and you could take $2,000 less, but your children go to school for free. That's a big big difference. Yeah. And that's where I say for anyone that's new to a job, all insurance, all HR stuff is probably brand new. Never been thought of, never had to worry about. You've been under your insurance, like your parents' insurance your whole time. You haven't put a single dollar away in retirement. That's brand new to you. Like, don't be afraid to call HR and learn as much as you possibly can and talk to your parents or talk to whoever else you can to learn as much about that. Cause I still remember my first advising job at Tennessee, I had to call uh, my now spouse's dad to learn as like this gig as he works in a hospital setting to learn as much as I could about insurance because all of it was brand new. So I think that's yeah. some great advice there. Yeah, I, I think it's important to connect with that HR professional because you're going to, if you're working at a public university, often you may have a state supported plan and an optional retirement plan that you're trying to consider. They have different vesting periods uh, in Florida. It's eight year investment time, vesting time. I know when I worked in Alabama, it was 10 years to vest in the state retirement plan in Louisiana. It was five years. Um, so there's different uh, vesting uh, requirements for each of these plans uh, and then, then trying to be able to go out and reach out and figure out exactly and compare that to the optional retirement plan. And so a lot of it, um, it's, it's kind of complicated and it's important to make sure that you're getting the best advice possible because often you may only have that one opportunity when you first join the university to select which side you're going to go to. I've been at one university where within the first five years, they allow you to make a change once from either the state plan to the optional retirement plan or vice versa, but then it's a non-reversible change at that point. So it's, there's a, a lot of money that can be left on the table if you don't fully understand those retirement packages. Yeah. And that just made me realize you have done a heck of a tour of the South, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, <laughs> right. Louisiana, and Florida. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Warm weather. Uh, yeah. So one thing that's come up, I think this one's a tricky one for everyone is years towards tenure. How was that discussed and negotiated? Yeah. So if a candidate has already served time on the tenure track at either Sometimes it needs to be either a peer or an aspirational peer university. It may be possible to negotiate years of service toward tenure. Now for universities where they clearly have an early tenure and promotion policy, and that's very possible, you've got to understand as a candidate, this essentially reduces the amount of time that the candidate has before he or she must apply for tenure. So if it's a six year time, time window that you would normally apply for tenure and you apply for and you get two years of credit toward tenure, um, you really just shortened your degrees of freedom from six years to four years 
and now you must go up within those four years for an either an up or down vote on tenure. Um, and candidates need to keep that in mind uh, during negotiation because we always tend to fall prey to assuming that, oh, that next big grant that I'm working on next year, it's definitely going to hit and I'm going to have all that funding in to support my research or, oh, I'm absolutely going to remain in good health. I'm in good health now. Why wouldn't that change? Or I'm not going to have a family emergency that's going to reduce available time to produce you know, the outcomes that is going to ensure success on the tenure track. So you, you've got to be, in some instances, if, if they have an early, now if they have an early tenure promotion policy where it clearly states the standard is higher for those who go up for early tenure promotion, okay, then that, then that might actually convince you to go ahead and negotiate for those years of service toward tenure to begin with. But in a lot of cases, I've seen candidates you know, be steadfastly negotiate for years of additional credit um, towards tenure and promotion. In some cases, I've found that actually hurt the candidate because it took them longer to acclimate to the new university, um, maybe mm. get settled in. Maybe they weren't able to find a house right away that they wanted to buy, so they rented the house and they had to move several times. Or, you know, family member became ill. Uh, they became ill themselves. A big grant didn't hit. All these things happen or some of their equipment that they used to collect data with uh, malfunction for a while and it took several months to get it repaired or new equipment in and they didn't have data for a huge chunk of their t- time and there are a lot of things that can happen and so sometimes pe- people will put all their chips into negotiating these years toward tenure and it's actually hurting them rather than helping them if there's no higher standard for early tenure promotion just go ahead and have the full six years and then just go up in your fourth year rather than only have four years and go up in your fourth year. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. And I know it can, I know with different universities, it's tricky if you want to go in as an associate or go in as full and also get tenure. I know for some schools, they make you stay for a year or start there for a year before you actually can go up. Some people will give you tenure. I think that's a big one to conver- like have a conversation about and know what your options are going in. Absolutely. I think that's even more important for um, administrative positions. Uh, actually, my first deanship at Troy University, they have a, a standard there where they, they pretty much don't bring anybody in with tenure. And I look back on it now. I mean, I was 31. That was a uh, pretty na- naive on my part to jump into an administrative position where I wasn't going to be offered tenure until the second year that I was there. And I was having to make, having to make really hard decisions during a budget crisis on how the college was going to move forward. And these are the same people, uh, the impacted parties are the same ones that we were voting on tenure. Yeah. Later on Man, um, good times right there. Yeah, well, yeah. Those, were, those, were, uh, <laughs> those are those lessons you, you live and you learn, you learn those things and you, you hope that you can pass them on to others to make sure they don't <laughs> wind up in a similar spot. But it's just tough times for sure. Yeah. I, and I would tell people like kind of walking into a tough situation like that. All you can hope for is it works out, but if it doesn't, hopefully you're doing good enough research, teaching, whatever that getting a job somewhere, at least in the nuclear situation is available. But yeah, it can, yeah, that's something that would be really tricky to go into. Well, absolutely. I think the people who are, who are doing their job and the, the, the highest performing people in your, your faculty um, don't need tenure and other type of people that they tenure really means nothing to them because they are going to perform at a high level Every single day, no matter what university you put them in, they have the intrinsic motivation um, to do those types of things. So it it is important to control what you can control and put yourself in a position for success um, every time that you can. Yeah. And kind of jumping down to a couple to another complicated 
situation of spousal support. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that one's something you, you may be prepared for, but for some candidates, you probably don't know until they start negotiating with you. Like how, how is that handled? All right. And this is another good, a good one to talk about to make sure is if you don't know how spousal support is handled at, with, at a university internally, you don't know necessarily whether or not you're asking for something small or something big from the college. So I, I still think spousal support in the form of a newly created position at the university for one significant other, I still find that to be quite rare. Um, and in those cases, though, the college that hires the original candidate is often also responsible for some or all of the salary required to create a position for the significant other. Even oh. if the significant other is going to be re- uh, placed in another department or another college on campus or, you know, another, another sector of the university entirely, oftentimes the college that's making the initial hire has to pay at least half and in some cases all of that funding. So I've had assistant professors come in before and try to negotiate another assistant professor position um, for another faculty member in another unit. And sometimes that could be in business or engineering where the salaries are even higher. And I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting back here as a dean saying, okay, for this one assistant professor, I would have to pay a very competitive salary to get them here. And I would have to pay another competitive salary to get the spouse here that my college would be on the hook for until these, these faculty retire from the university. Um, so at the end of the day, I'm paying more than full professor's salary to attract one assistant professor. So you've, you've got to, I mean, other universities may have a plan in place where the provost may pay most or all of that funding if there's a separate spousal support. So it's, it's best to ask about how that is handled. Uh, but I found that um, you know, those types of true spousal hire situations are rare. They're usually reserved for truly exceptional faculty who are clear and unquestioned leaders in the field. Um, but I will say a lot of universities may offer, if you're not asking for a specific new job to be created, if you're just asking for some job search support, a lot of universities can do that through their human resource department. And since a lot of universities are situated in smaller towns, having the university's endorsement of one significant other could really boost their employment opportunities in that community. So there's lots of ways that they can help, even if they can't help you out financially, they may be able to help you out with a job search or connect you with somebody um, in your spouse's uh, area of expertise to learn more about opportunities in the area. Yeah. And so to comment on a couple of those things, if I do agree that I feel like as a, from a faculty member, just someone casually in the sport management field that the only time I've really seen this is with people that are already associate or full or yeah, are doing incredibly good work on the grant side, on research side, and they're able to switch over and find a university that's willing to hire their spouse. But I did not know that information about kind of paying full freight both ways for both faculty members. That's really interesting and good to know. But um, the other thing is, like you said, I've noticed sometimes there can be some miscommunication when it comes to that spousal support, maybe not a hire, because I think both times I've casually mentioned during negotiation about seeing if my spouse could get some help finding a job. She isn't a faculty member. She's even a PT Mm -hmm. where there really isn't that hard of a job finding a job, but it's kind of like, Hey, you know, if you can help move this along and you know of a position, if the university has a hospital or something like that, that can be helped. But each time 
the dean's office thought I was asking for my spouse to be hired full time. And I was like, whoa, no, no. <laughs> and so yes. that's something definitely to make sure to be very clear and concise on to avoid any yeah, missteps. Now that, that is an excellent point to be. Um, my wife's an occupational therapist, so I know exactly what you're talking about. But <laughs> uh, oftentimes, again, just the endorsement. And, and you may also find, for instance, that maybe ideally you were hoping for a position to be created for your significant other, but there could be a point in time where maybe, maybe your significant other would be interested in going. There's a graduate program there that they'd be interested to add to their career. You might be able to negotiate a graduate assistantship for your significant other to maybe do a two years master program or a three year mm. PhD program, whatever it happens to be. Uh, I think, you know, your, your chances of success when you're, when you have uh, a commitment that has an end date to it, that's going to involve, you know, in that case, if, if your spouse wants to move into a doctoral program, that may be a three year graduate assistant support. That's a whole lot easier to negotiate with a Dean than asking for a new position being created that your spouse could be in for 30 years that could be drawing off that college's budget for 30 years. So if there's a, if there's a good, there have been times, um, I know actually when I took the deanship at uh, LSU, we negotiated for um, a graduate assistantship for my wife to continue on in her, in her study. She ended up only um, doing that for a year, but had the option to do more, but it was something that was attractive to us at the time. Yeah, that's a good, I hadn't thought about that one. Um, what about talking about leadership positions? And I know this one maybe isn't time, but like research expectations and how you um, portray those expectations to can, to people that are offered. Well, I think <clears throat> leadership position, positions that are at the chair level or above, um, they're often, you know, denoted in the job description itself. The candidate's yeah. fully aware the position's going to involve leadership responsibilities you know, in these cases, the faculty appointment and the administrative appointment are both included in the negotiation process. So you really, as a candidate, have to be able to kind of negotiate both. So, for example, the candidate might be offered a workload substitution, a substitution that involves teaching one fewer class during the first year to allow more time to acclimate to a new work environment or initiate a new strategic plan for the academic unit. I think it's important if you're coming into that leadership position that you're fully aware. If it's a department chair position, some department chair positions are on terms. You know, here in the College of Education, our, our department chairs are on three-year terms. So being very clear that if you're bringing in somebody from the outside and they're looking at that three-year term, they, they may desire to serve longer than that three years. Maybe they just want to serve those three years and go back to faculty. What's you know, how um, do they have a stipend that's separate from their uh, faculty appointment that that um, compensates for the additional services department chair? Um, do, would their position go from 12 month to nine month or nine month to 11? I mean, there are lots of different uh, variables and models that I've seen at different universities. So it's important to be very clear the things that you're negotiating for for your faculty position and what you're negotiating for in the leadership side and then how those transitions from, from one to the other, it's, you almost have to make sure that you know and understand and, and can negotiate the exit before you even enter into it. <laughs> I'm going to say, it's wanna... like a two-piece negotiation. Absolutely. I've had some people that have jumped into those positions and not known that there's already a university policy in place that may, um, it, when you're in a department chair position, you may have uh, whatever your salary is, you're, you only get 75% of that. And when you move into a, 
a faculty alone position or something like that. So you've got to be careful and understand that. As far as research expectations, I think that, you know, each candidate should, should really learn as much as possible about research expectations during the interview process. I think what you mentioned earlier about trying to triangulate that information when you have an opportunity to meet with the department chair and with the dean and with the search committee and with other faculty members, it's good to ask some of those same questions to those different groups about research expectations and see if you're getting consistent answers. If you're not getting consistent answers, they're not congruent with each other. That's a sign that there's there's probably not a, a deep understanding of it. And if they don't understand it and they're there, then you're walking into a, a, a pretty tough situation. If there's any type of annual review materials or tenure promotion guidelines that are available, go ahead and obtain those copies of those during your job interview. And if and if as you review those documents, if those documents are ambiguous, inquire further about those expectations. I mean, if it just says that you need to be excellent to get promoted or excellent to get tenure. What does, how do they define excellence for that unit? How do they define excellence for that, for that college? Um, is a successful grant required prior to tenure? Is there an expectation to publish only in certain types of journals? Is it possible to review the CVs of current faculty who were recently tenured and or promoted within the unit? That's another great way, although that may be still five, six years out for you, that be maybe another way of kind of figuring out what the current standards are right now and assume with technology advancements and everything else that we have, um, uh, that those expectations are probably going to increase in the future. So shoot for something higher than what those current standards are. Yeah, I think that's, that's great because yeah, when I went to tech there's no official number, but everyone kind of has a thought on what it is. And yeah, the only guidance I was told, and this was a good offer of like, Hey, you know, someone just went up for tenure, we can provide their material so you can like in the future, or at least what their CV looked like now. So you have an idea what to expect from a research side of and grant materials as well. So yeah, that's, that's right on the money. Well, I think tech too, aren't they in a college of arts and sciences there? Yeah, correct. So the more, the larger and the more diverse the college is, the more important it is for you to get this, this background information because you don't know, I mean, it's smaller, more focused colleges that have a a more focused mission. You're going to be surrounded by colleagues who are more likely to know the type of work that you do um, and can, can understand the value of publications in certain journals or, um, research grants from certain funding sources and, and so forth. When you're in a very large and diverse college, you're going to have people who who couldn't even be able to tell you the beginnings of what your field is, and yet they're going to be making evaluations on you later on down the line. So you're you're hoping at that point that there's tenure uh, promotion and guidelines that they're going to have some type of objective criteria that are a little bit easier. I know at uh, LSU, uh, our college, because it was also a very large college. They had just merged together three and a half colleges to create this mega college right before I got there. (laughs) And we worked really hard on getting some consistent tenure promotion guidelines written for the college. Um, We put together a point system that allowed faculty who were strong grant writers or faculty who primarily wrote books or faculty who primarily focused on um, peer-reviewed publications and journals that they they all had the opportunity to see that their work was valued because those tenure promotion guidelines answered two simple questions: what counts and how much. And and honestly, if if you can't get a straight answer on that, you're you know you've got to be very very careful walking into into an environment because um, 
It's like trying to guess how many fingers is behind somebody's back. And <laughs> you don't want to be doing that when your career is at stake. So trying to get that information on the front end. Um, hopefully, though, the, the, the party that you're negotiating with, you know, they've clearly seen some type of merit in you to bring you on campus to interview you and then offer you the job. Hopefully, they see at least the potential. You've shown some uh, type of a pattern in your past behavior that you're going to have the ability to be successful there. But you want to make sure you get as much information as you can as possible before you make a career decision like that. Yeah. Um, so anything else that we didn't talk about that you think is important either from your personal experience or just things that you notice that are talking points as dean? I think maybe two, two more things to mention. Um, one would be certainly work, workload modifications. You know, candidates may desire oh, yeah. to reduce the teaching expectations uh, and return for increased research expectations during the first year. Uh, I would recommend to keep in mind the type of university uh, when you're trying to, uh, uh, to negotiate workload. If the university has a strong teaching focus and is situated in a small town, the availability of adjuncts to even cover the specialized courses may be very limited. So again, thinking of the big picture of you may be trying to get a one course load reduction or somewhere along those lines um, to help your transition, but are you putting your, your future boss, the department chair, in a bad situation where there's no availability to teach those courses there at a teaching university, they're hiring you to teach. And so when you come in saying, I, I don't, you're essentially telling them I would prefer not to teach and instead do more research during this first year or whatever it happens to be. You got to understand that that may be against some of their core values because it could signal a disinterest in teaching on the part of the candidate, which may suggest poor fit for the position. So keeping the big picture in mind is always important so that the candidate can best discern what is truly negotiable versus what should not be negotiated. Again, I would also go back to what we mentioned earlier to try to tie any workload modification requests to specific outcomes desired by the university. So, for example, if a workload modification request involves a temporary teaching load reduction in order to allow for more research time for a major grant application, and you've identified the funding agency, you've identified the grant timeline, um, you already may have done some groundwork in your previous institution or your previous studies to, to work toward this, then the candidate should include that in justification along with the request. Don't, don't ask for something or demand something just because you heard that somebody else received it before in the past. I think a second piece to also consider, I've had candidates ask about this, though not often, but sometimes is sabbatical timeline. So if a candidate has, that has time served at another institution or university, they sometimes asked about the service of, or the credit and that credit count towards the sabbatical timeline at the new university. So if the, the new university has a six, uh, every six years or every seven years, there may be a sabbatical opportunity to apply for, um, for, and you've already served three years at another institution, then trying to convince that dean, hey, I should only have to go four years here before sabbatical requests. Um, you know, depending upon the institution, I found that such requests are rarely granted because they want to see time served at their institution and they yeah. want to have enough data to know that you're doing well in your teaching, you're doing well in your research, you're doing well in your service. Um, but, you know, I think the presentation of a very strong rationale that's tied to a desired university outcome increases your chances for a favorable response. So maybe there's something in particular that's going to happen in the discipline, a you know worldwide conference or something um, like WASM 
that you know that is going to be, or you're going to be taking on a major leadership role uh, in, with a journal or with an organization um, during that time. If there's any way that you can tie in some type of a rationale to that request, that's always going to be preferable. Nice. I think that's a good point because, yeah, I know of faculty workload. I've always wondered because I think the standard is if you go to a T2, you ask for one course. I've always wondered, like, could I get away with asking for a 1-1? Could I ask for, like, a 1-1 a for just that one year? Could I ask for a 1-2 and then maybe ask for one course load reduction later? And I feel like the answer is no. <laughs> right. And depending upon how the university is set up, you know, they're looking at workload as you have, a you know, 100% of your time. If, uh, you know, in a, a course, maybe 10% as there just 10% of that time. So if you're um, reducing teaching expectations by 10%, then what are you putting into, uh, into this, uh, the formula to get it back up to 100%? Is there going to be an increased service expectation, increased research expectation? A lot of times it's an increased research expectation. And then are you as the candidate prepared to do additional research during that first year to be able to make up for that or not? Or are you thinking of this as just, well, no, I'm really getting reduced down to 90% workload that's not happening in the minds of the university. So mm. it's, it, it truly is, you know, getting away from the conversation of teaching load reduction to workload substitution. You know, what, what are, what are you, you're, you're moving, you're shifting workload expectations around from one area to another. How are you going to be able to justify why you need to make that change and, and how is it in the best interest of the university? It could be that you're coming into a, a new university and they're about to go through an accreditation review and that's an area that you have expertise in and they may want you to help lead that charge. Okay, then they may have an increased service expectation for you that year and in return, they reduce your teaching or your research expectations. I've seen the research expectations reduced in return for service as well. So yeah, so, and, uh, one last thing here to close us out. I was like asking one fun podcast question. I've got a list of these. So you're as a Dean, I'm really interested in this as I'm, I'm been on my list yet. I don't think I've asked anyone, but what is one thing you would change about higher education? Oh, just one. Wow. <laughs> that'd be, that'd be kind of hard to, uh, that'd be kind of hard to, hard to think. I think right now um, a lot of focus needs to be paid more on um, how higher education is kind of perceived in society. I think that um, we haven't really done a good job as universities to um, help explain our, our mission, our vision, our critical connection to workforce development, um, to uh, research and research and development, um, other aspects of society. I, I don't think that the average average person really under, truly understands the massive impact that universities have on society today. It's not just the, the teaching mission and how research has informed and created a lot of the same, the, the products that we can't live without today. Uh, many of them were actually developed uh, at universities across the country through federal grant programs um, and, and other types of uh, funding opportunities. So I think one of the one of the biggest weaknesses that I see across the entire higher education sector is that it's kind of like the sport of tennis. You know, the sport of t professional tennis doesn't have a commissioner. We don't have a commissioner of higher education either. We have a whole bunch of individual actors that are work at different universities that are uh, some of them are public, some of them are private, some of them are for-profit, some of them are non-profit. 
But um, because we haven't really done a good job, I think, of connecting and telling, uh, coming together and telling our collective story and our collective voice, uh, we've been subject to uh, when you don't, we don't tell your story, other people will tell it for you. And I think we've, we've walked into a situation now where we find ourselves in a situation where we really haven't um, done a great job of communicating that information. And it's, and it's not just putting the information out there. It's putting it in a way that others can clearly, uh, other people can clearly understand because universities are complex organizations. And uh, I don't, th- a lot of times we'll create materials, but we'll create, we'll create materials by academics for academics. And it's important to make sure that we're able to translate the work that we're doing into benefits uh, for society at large. Yeah. And that, so I love that thought because when I was at U of L, I did, I, one of my roles as an advisor was adult education. I saw a lot of adult students and I think they were trying to learn a lot about higher ed, but to kind of transition this as a faculty member, sometimes I do try to talk to people in my research, but I have it in a jargon that's best fit for academic journals. That's not good for public consumption. And for me, at times, it's kind of really challenging. It's almost like if I submit and I'm trying to at least go to one practitioner type conference every year, and it's almost like I have to completely repackage everything I do. And um, I'm not here to tear down all the walls of academic journals because that's obviously way too big picture. But to me, I definitely understand that sometimes the product, not sometimes, it feels like most of the time the product I have to put together for a journal, especially for top journals, is something that would be very difficult for someone that is trying to understand my research to understand by just reading it. And it would almost be like I'd have to be there explaining to them exactly what I'm saying, which is unfortunate that there has to be another translation of those results. Yeah, absolutely. And then when you look at, you know, the, the taxpayers and the others that are funding you know, your public universities and, and providing that support, if they can only see and relate to the teaching mission of your university and they think, okay, that university is primarily there to serve 18 to 22 year olds as they go through an undergraduate experience. Well, gosh, that sounds like something that maybe those 18 to 22 year olds should be paying for their full freight. They're investing in their own career, right? Well, without understanding that these 18 to 22 year olds are going to go back into those communities, um, work in highly skilled jobs and professions um, that are in high need areas, they're going to pay taxes back into the system uh, that are going to go and help support the next generation of, of students that are coming through. Uh, so it's it's important, I think, for those universities to, to, to do a better job, particularly on our research and our service and communicating the positive benefits uh, that those aspects have to society at large. We just, we haven't really done a, a good job over that traditionally. I think that's par- partially because we haven't really, um, we haven't really needed to. We haven't all, all kind of come together and, and, and developed a collective message, but there's absolutely a need to do so. It, it hurts us not having that. Yeah. Perfect. So Dean Andrew, thanks for joining us. I know, you gave us a whole hour in negotiation. That's awesome. I think this can be really helpful for everybody. Yeah. Happy to do so. And, um, and certainly real supportive of what you're doing with this podcast, Matt. I think it's very, uh, a very positive step forward for the field. So uh, thank you for all you're doing to, to help move the profession forward. Yeah. Well, thank you. Awesome. So again, just want to thank Dean Andrew for joining us and having this conversation on negotiation from the administrator side. And also thanks for everyone here joining on this episode of State of Sport Management. We hope to see you for the next one.